Well, good morning again. If you don't know me, my name's Dave McAllister. I have grown up at this church for quite a while. Know many of you. I'm looking forward to getting to know many of you others in the near future, particularly as I am one of two recently elected elders, and so looking forward to serving in that capacity. I think you would agree with me that we need this morning, we enjoy this morning, because we need to be reminded of particular truths. Uh, I think of two in particular, two key truths. Number one, we as believers, as believers, we know that we are the family of God. Uh, as the old song goes, we are family, and we truly are. Uh, but a second truth we need to be reminded of, I need to be reminded of even this morning, is that we are all in the process of being made into the very image of Christ. Those two truths lie at the very heart of community discipleship, which is our theme for this year. It's not ultimately on any of us to make either of those two things possible, right? We couldn't get ourselves included, adopted into the family, and we certainly can't form the image of Christ within us, particularly given that we're so consumed with self. No, instead, it is the sovereign God of the universe that has accomplished our adoption in and through Christ. And he is the one who has promised to accomplish our sanctification. That's the great hope of Philippians 1.6, is it not? He who began a good work in you and me will be faithful to complete it. Nevertheless, there are things that you and I can do and attitudes that we can have that can effectively hinder our spiritual unity and interrupt the Lord's work among us. Having come to Christ and having begun to see the Spirit's work in and among us, we too can fall back into old patterns of believing and living. What is more, we can begin to treat each other, fellow members of the body, just as the world treats us and its own. As the church, you and I have been unified through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we sing of his name and the greatness of his glory. We've been called into a life of discipleship, which is centered in his word, which is why we preach the word. And we have the privilege of loving and being loved by fellow members of the family. And we've been commissioned to go and make disciples of all nations, all of those things wonderful, glorious things, privileges even. Unfortunately, none of those things occur without incredible and constant opposition. As we've recently been reminded, 1 Peter 5, 8, we must be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. And Pastor Patrick reminded us two weeks ago of Ephesians 6.11, where Paul calls us to, quote, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Nevertheless, we too can play right into the hands of our enemy by manifesting old sinful attitudes amidst our church. Paul actually lists for us some of those behaviors in the fifth chapter of his letter to the Galatians. Pastor Nathan began this two-part series last week. I direct you 
to that text again this morning. Galatians 5, beginning in verse 19. Wherein Paul, the apostle Paul tells us, quote, now the works, the acts or deeds of the flesh are evident. Paul says they're, they're apparent. We see them. We experience them. And what are they? Paul says sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I counted them up, 15 different elements, and this certainly isn't an exhaustive list. Paul tells us that at the very end, and things like these. But these 15 in particular, they all stand in direct opposition and contrast to God's work of Christ being formed in you and in me. Again, last Sunday, Pastor Nathan did a great job of clarifying two particular threats to our discipleship as Emmanuel Baptist Church. Number one, selfishness, and number two, manipulation. And he noted some of the problems that we effectively create amongst this fellowship when we give in to our human flesh. This morning, I want to consider two more dangers, factions and envy. And for the sake of this sermon, we can label these as a threat of the head and a threat of the heart, divisions and envy. Look at the end of verse 20, Galatians 5. This is threat number one. Divisions, or some translations have factions. And in the Greek, it is hiresis. And hiresis describes dissensions arising from diversity of opinions and aims. And the noun that Paul uses there actually comes from the verb meaning to take for oneself, to prefer or to choose. And so Paul's essentially describing a a self-willed or or self-chosen opinion. Author and Bible teacher James Boyce notes that this term and the one that precedes precedes it, dissensions, actually, quote, denotes a state of affairs in which men are divided and feuds flourish. Hiresis describes groups or parties into which divisions crystallize and even more so, wars ensue. And the implication here based on context is that Paul is identifying the kinds of factions that are created by false teachings and false teachers. The term itself is used in the New Testament to describe a sect, S-E-C-T, or a party, He used it to describe, for example, in the Gospels, it's used to describe the Pharisees. In Acts, Luke uses the term to speak of the party of the Nazarenes. And it's important to know that because Paul isn't alluding to the kinds of fractures or divisions in fellowship that occur over personal opinions and preferences. Don't worry, I'm not gonna talk about who agrees with the mask mandate or not and how that's impacted the church. That's for another day. Rather, Paul is speaking here in Galatians 5 of schisms as to sacred things. You and I can separate ourselves from one another, can't we? We're really good at it. 
And we do it on a basis of a wide variety of things. Personal preferences, likes and dislikes, interests and hobbies, age and gender, single or married, all of those things actually are markers of some of our deepest friendships here at the church. We can and often do draw dividing lines between us and them. And in the end, what we're left with is a number of self-appointed cliques and factions. Paul says we're effectively divided. And what's interesting to note is what's distinct about this particular threat divisions is that it's characteristic of religious people. In a sense, it's a sin that's unique to us as the church, particularly as we're called to carry forth our beliefs and convictions. I don't have to tell you the church is prone to fracturing over some of the silliest things and for some of the silliest reasons. And it's been that way for quite some time, right? There's no real sense in longing for the good old days because there were divisions and fractures back then. Don't believe me? Well, you can look as far back as 1 Corinthians, the time of the writing of the 1 Corinthians, the letter to the Corinthians, wherein in his corrective letter, Paul addresses the matter of their disunity as the first of many problems. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. I can't help but hear the echo of my mom as my brother and I would be fighting once again. Can't you two just get along? Paul says, I wish that you would all agree that there'd be no divisions among you, but that you'd be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. And what was the cause for their quarreling? Verse 12, Paul says, what I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. They were divided over the matter of their favorite teacher. See what I mean? Nothing's changed. And churches today can and often do divide over a wide array of issues. High church versus low church, hymns versus choruses, topical preaching versus expository preaching. And even the sermon itself, should it be long, short? And those who are listening, should they be formally dressed, casually dressed? I speak as a person who stands in both camps. Not one week ago, I'm wearing shorts and Now this morning, most people knew I was preaching because I had on a suit. (laughs) And I'm just waiting for the division between printed Bible versus electronic Bible. And there's a myriad of other things that we divide over. In fact, I was reminded of the book, man named Leslie Flynn, the book's called Great Church Fights. If you need a good laugh and you need to be convicted over this very matter, I'd encourage you to pick it up. The church is divided. But you would say, yes, but Dave, aren't some divisions good and even necessary in the church today? And I would agree. In fact, it might surprise you to know that there's actually a type of division that 
doesn't dishonor God, but it honors God. And, and it even more so preserves the life and health of the church. Later in that same letter, 1 Corinthians in chapter 11, Paul says, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions. I hear that there's schisms among you. And I believe it in part, verse 19, for there must be factions. Same word, hyresis. There must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine, those who are approved by God among you might be actually recognized. Uh, Paul's statement there speaks to the necessary uh, distinction and differentiation between true and false believers. Jesus says, well, in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. In Matthew 13, the wheat and the tares, that's a, a good distinction. We need to know the difference between true and false believers. That kind of division is obviously a good and proper thing. But what about all the divisions among the true church? And some of the hills that we've chosen to die on. As we consider all the different reasons for just denominational splits alone within the Christian church, I think that we can agree, I think we can agree that some of them are silly and unnecessary. But at the same time, others are absolutely necessary. In fact, we would deem them necessary because they center in our understanding of the gospel. Pastor and author Mark Dever said it best, the gospel is precious enough to divide over. That being true, we must be willing to confront those who confuse or alter the message of Jesus Christ. Do you agree? And yes, in fact, we are called to do so by speaking the truth in love. But let us not sacrifice either of those things, truth or love. In fact, in Jude 3, Jude writes this. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, which would have been a very comforting and encouraging letter if Jude had written it. Jude says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith, struggle for it, in a sense, wage war against counterfeit gospels, contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude says, I want to encourage you. Instead, I find myself saying, you need to fight for the truth. It was the presence and threat, again, of apostate teachers that caused Jude to quickly change his tone. Men and women preaching and teaching the truth of God's word is without question one of the greatest acts of love that a believer can demonstrate. Amen? Do we not agree on that? Wow, I'm blown away. Yeah, we're, we love people by speaking the truth. In fact, on the flip side, I would say it's tremendously unloving to overlook someone's belief in something that isn't true but is false about God, about Christ, about the Holy Spirit. 
I heard the story of somebody who was talking about uh, post having rescued somebody from drowning. And they said, I never thought about if they would care if I saved them or if that it was me in particular. No, it was important that that person be rescued. That is indeed a great act of love to speak the truth, to speak the truth of God's word. But that being said, those who are divisive within the church over issues pertaining to other things, well, that's where we get into trouble. The very heart and essence of the threat is presented to us in texts like Romans 16. Verse 17, Paul says, I appeal, there it is again. I plead with you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles. It's dissensions and hindrances, contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Paul says, point blank, avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Men and women, unhelpful and unnecessary divisions occur when we begin to create factors for acceptance, either acceptance by God or acceptance by others, factors that, that Jesus has not created. Uh, Romans 10, verse nine and 10, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In other words, those are the basic requirements for receiving the gospel, right? Our acceptance comes solely through Jesus Christ, amen? That we agree upon. Verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. I mean, that is one of several texts that is just, it just bleeds gospel, and yet there are those who would say that's not enough. There are those who would have us to supplement our faith in Christ with other things. Those who would have us to believe that Christ isn't enough. And that it's Christ plus something else. And for the believers in Galatia, it was the Jewish false teachers. Paul says, Galatians chapter one, verse six, I'm astonished, I'm astounded, I'm, I'm blown away that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. That was the result of wrong divisions, deserting and turning. He continues, verse seven, not that there's another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and wanna distort the gospel of Christ. That's the, that was the cause for their division. They were, there were those who were encouraging him, encouraging other believers to, to exchange grace for legalism. He says in chapter three, verse one, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That was, that was precisely what those false teachers had done. Pulled one over on them. Galatians 4. 5 verse 7, Paul continues with the strong language. He says, verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? In the sense, what or who tripped you up? You were doing so well. He says, verse 8, this persuasion is not from him who, who calls you. This isn't from God. 
Verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It is to say, you know, it really doesn't take much to distract or to divide the church. You're a divided church, believers in Galatia, because you've heeded the urging and calling of those who want you to break away from the pure truth of the word of God and from the gospel. Men, women, we as the body of Christ must be united in the truth while also dealing severely with those who twist or deny that truth. There's, there's no compromise to be made with teachers of error. Make no mistake about it. That is essentially a false form of peace. I read a little meme this week, quote from John MacArthur. He said, people tell me all the time, doctrine divides. I say, yeah, it does. It divides truth from error. Peter in his second letter, 2 Peter chapter two, highlighting menacing threats to the purity and unity of the church. He says, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Again, same word even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And, and many will follow their sensuality. There will be those who will, will hear it and will go with them. They'll stray from the flock. And because of them, Peter says, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And again, just to clarify, those kinds of people weren't just unique to the church in first and second century. Paul actually addresses this particular threat to church discipleship all throughout his pastoral letters. 1 Timothy 6, verse 3, he says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and he understands nothing. He says, If somebody wants to, in a sense, change the record, or flip the station, you need to deal with that. If somebody wants to change the heart of the truth that we hold dear, don't go quietly into the night thinking, well, I don't want to disrupt. No, that's worth dividing over. But when it comes to things like what Paul will address in 2 Timothy 2, foolish, ignorant controversies, well, therein lies the problem. In fact, Paul says in verse 23 of that, you know that those breed quarrels. Why are you doing that? Why even go there? Titus 3 verse 9, he says, again, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissension and quarrels about the law. That's exactly what the church in Galatia was dealing with. That's what plagued them. It, it was no longer about Christ. Now it was about the law and keeping the law. It was, it was Christ plus good works and, and keeping the Mosaic law. Paul says avoid that. Why? Because it's unprofitable and worthless. In fact, he doubles down. Verse 10, he says, as for a person, now we're not talking about teaching, we're talking about a teacher. As for a person who stirs up division, literally a heretic, a, a factious person, after warning him once or then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's, he's self-condemned. 
That's quite an indictment by Paul. And women, our, our unity as believers centers on our mutual acceptance of the gospel. Secondary, tertiary issues, we need to hold those with open hands. Nevertheless, different gospels, those lead to disagreements and divisions, good ones. And so we need to know what is worth dying for and what isn't. And if we want to stir up fights over small issues and try and bring them so much to the forefront that it now overshadows the greatness of the, of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Paul says, that's a threat. That's a threat. Threat number one is factions. Threat number two is envy. Envy. Look at the beginning of verse 21. The Greek is Thanos. It almost sounds like the name of that uh, Marvel supervillain Thanos, right? Thanos. And Thanos is essentially ill will or, or spite. Some translators render it as animosity. And it's kind of a tricky word, right? Envy is different from the word found in the middle of verse 20, jealousy. Oftentimes we use them as synonymous terms. In fact, James Boyce notes that those two terms are so closely related that it's hard to tell the difference between them except for the fact that envy is always bad whereas jealousy is not. Uh, Merriam-Webster defines envy as, quote, a painful or resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by another joined with a desire to possess that same advantage. That's closer to it but the way that Paul seems to use this word in Galatians 5 is, is to describe the kind of selfish coveting that carries with it an embittered grudge. And without question, envy is a very real and very distinct threat to our relationships within the church. And even our mission as the church. Truth be told, the spirit of envy is as old as time itself. Uh, Cain and Abel, envious over sacrifices. Jacob and Esau over blessings. Rachel and Leah over children. Joseph and his brothers over the love of a father. And all of us, too, pretty much come from the womb, envying everyone around us and coveting everything around us. Don't believe me? Just make your way down to the nursery after church. Right? One of the most basic fights that kids tend to have, my two kids included, is with regards to their not having what the other child's holding or playing with at any given moment. And oh boy, do some of them hold grudges. The reason it's a threat, one of many reasons, is that few attitudes are as blinding as the spirit of envy. One of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 73, is devoted to a believer's envy of the wicked. Asaph, a, a worship leader of Israel, writes, verse one, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's his starting point. That's his conviction. Verse two, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
And we've all been there too. Despite his faith in Yahweh and his commitment to serve him, Asaph admits that his experience of unsettling doubt had slowly festered into a deep-seated, blinding spirit of envy. Fast forward to the New Testament, Matthew 27, 18 and, and Mark 15, verse 10 tell us that it was a spirit of envy that prompted the religious leaders to have Jesus crucified. Their growing animosity towards his growing person, uh, popularity paired with their feeling like they were absolutely losing control of the people ultimately led them to take drastic measures. In fact, I couldn't help but think of John 12, verse 19, the Pharisees' exaggerated claim about Jesus, wherein they said, look, the whole world has gone after him. That's said because they're threatened. That's said because they're envious. And in the end, they saw Jesus as a threat that needed to be eliminated lest they lose their religious and social control. And what do we as human creatures have to be envious of today? In case you even need to know. I thought of three basic elements or categories. We can be envious of a thing, a circumstance, or a person. A thing, it can be money, clothes, toys, you name the issue. Anything fancy, shiny, and new. And they have it, and I don't or a circumstance such as an easier life, better health, a marriage for the single person, singleness for an unhappily married person, positions of leadership, popularity or praise, whatever it is, I want that. Or we can be envious even of a person. So-and-so has a special someone. I wish I had that. A loving spouse a younger, prettier spouse, a grateful and obedient children, a thankful boss. And we see it and we don't have it and they do. And something begins to grow within our hearts. And there's obviously some overlap with some of those things, but at least one of those ideas, I trust rung a bell for you. You've been there. Maybe you are there this morning. Whatever it is, however it first began, you find yourself wanting it, longing for it, desperately craving it, even secretly or not, at times not so secretly plotting, how can I get that? Paul says that's a threat. And why do we do it? Why do we as human creatures, why are we so quick to envy others? Well, again, there's, Many things that go into it. Number one, it's in our human fallen nature to compare, right? The old adage, the grass is always greener on the other side. And sometimes it's mowed and mine's not. We often do not see what we do have. Instead, we're fixated on what we don't have. And we're quick to envy others because essentially... Genesis 3, we're born with a selfish, sinful preoccupation with self, which ultimately comes at the expense of others. We live a life turned inward and, and all that matters is me and my desires and my perspective. Everything else is secondary. 
We envy at times because we desire that which we believe will ultimately satisfy us and make us happy. You know what Solomon says about that? He says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Another reason we envy, and, and here I speak from experience, we envy at times because it's hard to see others at their apparent best when we feel like we're at our absolute worst. What do I mean by that? There's times where we can go down the rabbit hole that is social media. We'll just log on for a couple minutes and within moments, we find ourselves spiraling into a spirit of depression. And their life is so good and so easy. Mine is so hard and so difficult. And as believers, how can we not help but begin to direct that towards the Lord? God, can't you do something? Just a couple minutes surfing the web and we begin to feel like the light of the successes of everyone around us just exposes our supposed failures. And so we envy. And the problem is that when we give into the temptation to envy others, we begin to secretly crave what we think is best for ourselves rather than what God knows is best for us at any given moment. We are innately wired to find and establish our sense of worth in something or someone. We all want that which will confirm to ourselves and to others that we are significant and that we truly do matter. And yet when we begin to envy and we give in to that spirit, it eventually becomes less about the image of Christ being formed within you and me and it becomes more and more about us being the master of our fate and the captain of our soul. Jesus says in Mark 7, verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. He says, verse 23, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. In other words, it's, it's out of the heart that those works of the flesh, the ones that Jesus labels, the, one that, the ones that Paul identifies in Galatians 5, all of them flow out of the heart. The fact of the matter is this, and, and here's where we begin to see this threat with spiritual eyes. A spirit of envy, when we give in to that, when we hold on to it, when we nurse that grudge, it ultimately rises out of a severe lack of love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, doesn't it? In fact, the context for our passage, Paul warns the Galatian believers, chapter five, verse 15, you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 15, but if you bite and you devour one another, 
Paul says, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. One commentator labeled that ecclesiastical cannibalism. That's what we do. And women, you and I cannot truly love each other if we're consumed with having or being what the other has or is. Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. But what is more? A spirit of envy not only speaks to a lack of love, it also speaks to an inward lack of trust, namely in God. And it comes out of a spirit that says, I'm no longer satisfied with Christ. He's not enough. And it indicates our having accepted the lie that was first told in the garden to Adam and Eve. God is holding out on you. It's his fault. Jesus speaking of the devil says, John 8 verse 44, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and the father of lies. Men, women, none of us is beyond beginning to buy into the lies. And when we compare with others, when we let it go to a sinister level and we begin to hold a grudge against them because they have it and we don't, we're effectively playing into the devil's hands. We're believing the lie. And Satan loves for nothing more than when we believe his lies, doesn't he? Particularly his lies about the father and his dealings with creation, his dealings with us. Those are two very real and distinct threats to what happens in this church and others like it. Both of these works of the flesh, both factions and envy are absolutely toxic and they can and often do destroy the loving fellowship and community that we share as fellow disciples of Jesus Christ. We as Emmanuel Baptist Church are not beyond falling to these threats. And so we need to guard against them. Why? Because a church made up of believers who live like that, at best, will be thrown off in terms of its Christ-given mission, and at worst, will eventually self-destruct by means of each person turning against one another. Hebrews 10, verse 23, you know this passage well. It's a text we almost need read to us ad nauseum, lest we forget its truths. Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope, our hope found in Christ, that which unites us as the church. Let's hold fast to that without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let's do that. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. You and I can't be nursing envy within our hearts, 
nor can we be causing unnecessary divisions amongst our church family when our desire and aim is to stimulate Christ-likeness in the hearts and lives of those all around us. That's what we ought to be about. And by the filling, by the empowering of the Spirit, that's what we are becoming. That's what we do. Each of us as members of Emmanuel Baptist Church has a personal responsibility to guard against these kinds of actions and attitudes described in Galatians 5. Again, if our church is characterized by these threats or any other sinful mindsets or behaviors, then our discipleship as a community will be severely threatened. If we let it go on and exist, we will be effectively, willfully exposing ourselves to the hindering work of our enemy. Praise God, these works of the flesh are elements of our old life, are they not? That's how we used to be before we knew Christ or better yet, we're known by him. And praise God, our new identity has been established in and through him if we are indeed in him. So may we seek to glorify him as we remain committed to God and his work of discipleship within this community of faith. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for the reminder of these things. I am not beyond um, believing the lies and buying into uh, something other than what truly matters, which is Christ in me, the hope of glory. We thank you for the reminders of these truths, Lord. Take them, plant seeds within every one of our hearts that would result in greater spiritual fruit, Lord. Continue to work in and through us, Lord. Not so that our reputation as a church would become greater, but rather so that Christ would be exalted above all. Lord, we want to be like Christ. Do that in us today and every day until you bring us to be with you or you return. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.